Beard, if you want to, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 11. We're going to jump in. Before we get there, I just want to tell you guys, it's really good to be home. Uh, California was awesome, and it's really good to be home. Um, yeah, glad to be back. Um, we went to the Vineyard National Conference in California last week. That ran from Monday through Thursday, but then we stayed around uh, through the weekend, and, and we we did ministry and worship, and I did a little teaching uh, till Monday. So we got to hang out with some some people in the vineyard, part of the tribe that I just didn't really get to hadn't known up to this point. And it's really great to go be with a part of the tribe that that you don't get to fellowship with. Um, last week was was incredibly powerful. Um, I, I've never seen the vineyard like this. Uh, it, the the conference, the meetings last week at the conference were were more powerful than than even when we first came into the vineyard in the renewal days. It was, it was off the charts. And so the Lord's doing something in the vineyard. And uh, I just wanted to tell you guys that. The Lord's doing something in the vineyard. And it's not just here. It's like all over the world. Um, and the other really cool thing is, is um, sometimes because like you're part of this vineyard, uh, you don't always re- realize that there's a bigger tribe out there. And I, and I want you to know, like one of the things I felt like I was supposed to come home and tell you guys is there's, there, the tribe is much, much bigger. Uh, there are amazing people doing all kinds of amazing work all over the world, and, and Jesus is backing them up. And it's, it's really, really cool, and, you know, we get to be a part of that. Um, we also got to connect with, um, personally, just for me, it was really great. We got to connect with some of the matriarchs and patriarchs of, of the vineyard, like people who were, who were there at the very beginning. Uh, it was really awesome. Uh, on would have been Sunday night, right before we flew out on Monday morning. On Sunday night, we went to Jason Hagen's house. And Jason has been a, a friend of mine for a long time. But I look up, and there's a guy I don't know. And I went over and met him, and it, and it was Carl Tuttle. And that means probably nothing to most people in here. But Carl was the very first vineyard worship leader ever. He, he, he was a part of the vineyard before John Wimber was a part of the vineyard. And John Wimber is kind of the founder of the vineyard. Uh, John Wimber's wife, Carol started a home group at Carl's sister's house. Carl was 17, and he came over because he was hungry, and he wanted a sandwich, and there was 50 people in there. And someone said, Carl, go get your, go get your guitar. You're going to lead some songs for us. And that was it. He was a part. And then from that point on, he just traveled with John all over the world. And so we got to hang out with Carl Tuttle and hear like, how this thing started, like really, really started. And it was really, really amazing. The Lord's so good. Um, our movement is full of Abraham and Sarahs who have laid their life down and, and because of that they've carried promise and now they've got sons and daughters all over the world and you guys are some of those people. It's really, really neat. So, great trip, but it's also good to be home. Okay, Judges chapter 11. Transition. Judges chapter 11 is the story of Jephthah. And I, I believe that this is one of the most difficult texts in the Bible. Uh, if you're familiar with it, you probably know why. If you're not familiar with it, you're about to learn why. Um, one, of, one of the really great things about teaching a series through, through a whole book of the Bible is that, like, as a pastor, you never have to wonder what I'm preaching next. I'm just preaching the next chapter, and that's really great. Um, except when it's Judges chapter 11, and it's an awful chapter. And you're like, I would, can we just skip this, Jesus? And... Um, and the answer is no, but I feel like there's some gold in here. Uh, today's really difficult passage, really difficult word. Um, but there's, there's something in here for us. If we can, if we can grab onto it and listen, 
Listen really closely. Um, the story of Jephthah is confounding and it's confusing and it's a really, 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 um, it's a really, really gray mixture. That's all I can say. It's gray. It's not black and white. If you were hoping to come to the vineyard and get like a dose of like black and white absolutes, um, th- there are very few this morning. Uh, in, in fact, this is probably the wrong church for you if you were hoping for that. And I'm probably the wrong pastor. The older I get, I see things more in just shades of gray. Um, that's just tends to be the way life works a little bit, but it's not this one thing. It's sort of like these two things. It's like a story about great victory. And then at the same time, it's a story about great tragedy. It's a story about foolishness and it's a story about heartbreak. And, um, I do take some comfort in it because, um, it's a story that's probably a lot like your life and my life. How many of you have ever noticed that when things are going really, really, really well, like everything just kicked into a new gear, Somewhere around that spot of things going well and you being like, wow, this is really great. Right in that spot, there'll be some, there'll be some pain and some tragedy interjected right into that spot. You ever notice that? And then conversely, how many of you have ever noticed that like, when you're walking through some of the most difficult seasons of your life, that God will be closest to you? Yeah, one of the things that I've heard over and over again is oftentimes people who are really sick um, maybe maybe they got cancer and uh, they came. Maybe they, came, they got cancer, almost died, and came through it. And and they'll say things. It's a little strange, but they'll say things like, "I wouldn't trade that for the world." No, I just want to make a couple things clear. Number one, God doesn't give people cancer. He, he, he doesn't have it to give. But 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 we do live in a world. But we do live in a world where He has allowed cancer to exist. So let's don't forget that either. And at the same time, God is near the brokenhearted and he's near the weak and he's near the dying and he will come really close to like the most painful, tragic moment of your life. Maybe that moment when you almost died, God will come, even though he had nothing to do with that one particular thing, he'll come and stand right next to you and you'll get a revelation of who he is right in the middle of your pain. And you'll go, is it bad? You'll go, yeah, but it's kind of good too. And I can't even explain it. Anybody ever experienced that? It's the weirdest thing about life. This is one of those stories, like really cool, amazing stuff, really awful, mishmashed up. That almost, did that rhyme? <laughs> I think it did. I didn't plan that. So Judges chapter 11 is one of those stories, and Jephthah is one of those characters. Uh, Jephthah would be perfect for a lot of the TV shows that are on right now. One of the things that's happening in television right now is that uh, all the main characters are like anti-heroes. Do you know what anti-heroes are? It's like where the good guys are bad and the bad guys are good. And everybody's just kind of... Anybody here watch Bad Men? My wife and I do. It's a horrible, great show. But yeah, Don Draper is the worst person ever. Except sometimes he's amazing. And it's confounding. Anybody in here ever watch uh, Breaking Bad? Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, where the school teachers are bad and the drug dealers are good. Yeah, you'll be like, man, the drug dealers are not so bad. It's the school teacher you got to watch out for. <laughs> Jephthah would be perfect for TV these days. He's, he's like really good and then really, really awful all at the same time. And we want to look at that a little bit. But before we can get into Jephthah himself, we've got to set the, the table. And Jephthah's story doesn't really start in chapter 11. It actually starts in chapter 10. I want to put up a few verses because this is the climate that he was born in, and this is, these are the circumstances that gave, him, that gave rise to Jephthah. So verse 6, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Aram, 
the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Are there any other gods that they could possibly serve? Up to this point, in Judges, they've basically just served the Baals and the Asherah, if the, if the, as if that wasn't bad enough. But now we've gone even lower, and it's just like anyone around us who has a god will serve them. This is one of the lowest points in the book of Judges. This is, this is the climate that gave rise to Jephthah. They forsook the Lord and they did not serve Him. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. So it was a time of great apostasy. It's not just a little bit of rejecting God. It's like complete and total immersion into the prevailing culture. It's complete rejection. And so God hands them over to the Philistines and the Amorites. And the scripture says in verse 18 that Israel was crushed by these countries for 18 years. Crushed by them for 18 years. And then it says that Israel cries out and God is not willing to listen. In verse 14 he says, go cry out to the gods who you have chosen. Let them save you. Up to this point in the book of Judges when the people cry out, God just comes right in. Now the people cry out and they say, save us. And God says, no, I'm not going to save you. Why don't you run to the gods that you say you love? Why don't you go... Go see if they'll save you. It's a hard word. Not a great day. Jesus, will you help me? No, no, I'm not going to help you. But then the misery gets too much and God says, I just, I can't do this anymore. Can't do it anymore. And a plan begins to be hatched. This is one of those plans where it looks like everything's being decided by people, but right behind it is the invisible hand of God and he's at work. Up to this point in Judges, everything, has, everything with respect to salvation has been on God's initiative. He, he comes and He chooses people. He comes and grabs people. He comes and anoints people. But this is one of those moments where it looks like men are making all the decisions, but really God is on the move. And so in verse 16, Israel realizes that they've got to do something. They put their other gods away, and they ask God to forgive them. And then verse 17 through 18, if we can put that up. It says the sons of Ammon were summoned and they camped around Gilead. This means that the Ammonites are coming to kill the Israelites. I'm just that's what's happening here. And the sons of Israel gathered together and they camped at Mizpah. And the, the people and the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So here's what's happening. Israel has served everybody but God. God has let them be run by everybody but him. They have been crushed and miserable for 18 years. They finally get to the spot where they're willing to put their false gods away and say, God will return to you. And now the question is, who's going to be our leader because the Ammonites are actually coming to kill us? And, th- and this is the, sort of the thing that happens here. They're not just asking who will become the leader. They're saying, if anyone would be the leader, we'll let him be the head. How many of you know this is not a great way to choose a leader? Like, who's, who's willing... To come and be our leader. By the way, you can, you, can be, you can be the head over all of our people. Like, wouldn't a true leader have already arisen, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't somebody of noble character have already stood up? It's not a great plan. And it's in these circumstances where the entire nation has walked away from God that we begin to be introduced into the life of Jephthah. And it is chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. He's the deliverer who begins to be raised up. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior. Some of your translations say mighty warrior. 
And if you have that translation, you should just underline it because that's an echo from Gideon. You all remember what, what the Lord said to Gideon when he shows up? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Yeah, so it's, it's an echo. The Lord is trying to get our attention here. It says that Jephthah was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. Some of your translations say he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and they said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and he lived in the land of Tob. It's a desert. And worthless fellows gathered themselves around him and they went out with him. This is who Jephthah is. Jephthah is a mighty warrior. He has a bit of a reputation. He's the son of a prostitute, driven out of his house by his half-brothers. His inheritance is taken from him, the inheritance that he actually does have a legal right to. And he becomes the, le- he becomes the leader of a band of worthless fellows living in the desert. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? One of, these things, one of the things we see right off the bat here in Jephthah's life is that God is, God is so able and willing to take really, really weak and broken, disqualified people and pull them into being a savior and a deliverer. It's the thing we've seen over and over in Judges and we're seeing it again here with Jephthah as well. And one of the things that I want to point out right now is that, is that God is always doing this and he's doing it again with Jephthah. He's taking the son of a prostitute driven out of his house by his half-brothers, living in the desert with no inheritance, with worthless fellows, and God begins to raise that guy up, the most broken guy, maybe in the whole broken country, he begins to raise that guy up. And one of the things that we see is that God is, he is so committed to growing an assignment out of your place of pain. Like the, the place you re, like the place that you don't want to think about and the place that you don't want to talk about and the thing that you'd most like to just have blotted completely out of your life, that's the place that God most often will grow an assignment. Like, what am I called to? Well, one of the questions that goes along with what am I called to is, where have I been hurt? Because when you find where you've been hurt, you've probably found at least a leading indicator of where God is calling you to be. Assignment is almost always connected to pain. Imagine being... Imagine the shame of being known as the son of a prostitute living on the margins. Imagine the humiliation of being kicked out of your own house and your own rightful inheritance being taken from you. Imagine living in the desert with worthless fellows. One of the questions we might want to ask ourselves this morning is, am I hurt? Because if you're hurt, you're qualified. It's, it's really crazy. But if you're, if you're hurt, you're qualified. And the Lord probably has something amazing for you right in the place of your pain. Um, the Bible says that Jesus won't snuff out a smoldering wick and he won't snap off a, a weak branch. He just, he, he, he won't do it. He won't do it. In fact, he strengthens those people and he sows back into us authority that comes from our pain and our scars. And in fact, it's oftentimes uh, in the kingdom of heaven, it's often your pain and your scars that validate your authority. Uh, the Son of God has scars. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Son of God has scars, and Jesus will forever have scars. He was wounded, and now his, his wounds are healed. They're healed, but he will forever have scars, and it's his scars that validate his authority. He's the Son who laid down his life, pierced, 
bled, died, raised back up. It's the place of pain that God is raising up assignment. That went over a lot better in the first service. I'm just kidding. Oftentimes our pain positions us to be God's instruments for healing and reconciliation. And I want you to notice the poetic justice here. The son of a prostitute. Son of a prostitute, which means that he was he was the son of a chance encounter. He was the son of a contractual transaction based agreement. Here's some money now. Give me what I want. That was that was the whole thing. I think it's poetic justice and it's really interesting. The Lord oftentimes works this way. That God would raise up the son of a prostitute, the son of a chance moment. He would raise him up to deliver a people who had prostituted themselves to false gods for years and years and years. The very place that he was most shamed, God's going to raise him up because he wants to send out a prophetic word to his own people. He was driven out of his house and he was driven out of his inheritance and now he's invited back in and he's offered much more than his father could ever give him. A couple things about this sort of dynamic of God taking your pain and drawing out your assignment. Uh, number one, we, 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 never, we never need, uh, we, we oftentimes do this, but we, we can never underestimate God's ability to bring beauty out of ashes. The only thing that limits God's ability to bring beauty out of ashes is our, um, is our unwillingness to look back and, and see our ashes and bring them before Him. God, God has an amazing ability to bring beauty right out of ashes. And, and then number two, oftentimes our pain, which is a product of a fallen world, becomes the fertilizer for a, a crop that we could never imagine. It happens over and over again in history. Uh, did any of you guys, when you were in middle school, have to read that book, The Hiding Place? Y'all remember that? Corey Tim Boom? It's awesome. Right? Yeah, great pain, incredible pain. Out of that grows an amazing assignment. She could have never walked in that assignment without the pain. Never, never, never. When I was thinking about this, all I, could, all, all I could remember were the books I read in middle school. I, I, the only people I could remember were Corey Tin Boom and, and Helen Keller and, you know, those are the, why? I don't know, but it just, it's what was on my brain. But, Nevertheless, there's something about God's ability to take ashes and turning into something incredibly redemptive. And then number three, uh, you need to know your life and you need to know your story. That sounds ridiculous, except most of us don't know our life and don't know our story. What I mean by know your life and know your story is, is this. Uh, you, you, need to, you need to know your pain. You need to bring it to Jesus and let him heal you. But you also need to look for all the ways in which the master poet has woven, woven a theme through your life. Where you've come from is a really good indicator of where you're headed. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but God is not just a healer. We bring our pain to God, he heals it. He's not just a healer, but he's also a master poet. And sometimes what happens is we can grab hold of healing, but we never move into assignment because, we over, because we're unsure of what our assignment even is. And we're unsure because we never paid close enough attention to the opening stanzas of the sonnet and the first few lines, which were a foreshadowing. It may have been a painful foreshadowing of what he wanted to do in the end. God is an amazing poet. 
the beginning of Genesis is not a science book. It's actually a poem and a song. And God, is, God has this amazing ability to write your life in a poetic way. Where you're headed is probably really close to where you've come from. You need to know your life. Be aware of it. Know your pain. He might just be writing something that you couldn't see because you were so close to it. Um, for instance, I used to be paralyzed uh, just even by the thought of public speaking. When I was in middle school, if I were up here right now and I were a middle schooler, I'd be crying, I'd be shaking. I would be like this. I couldn't even do it. Except I'm called to preach. I'm, I'm the guy who's afraid, but I'm called to preach. What's that about? It's, it's, called, it's called the prophetic foreshadowing. It's called, it's called the way the Lord works oftentimes. The place that you're most afraid of is a really good indicator of where you need to go. The thing that you're most afraid of. Like people, I tell you, uh, you need to embrace your fears. Your fears are telling you where to go. Satan, Satan places fear right next to your assignment. What is the thing you're most afraid of? You should probably try it. It's probably what you're actually called to do. I've seen that over and over again. When I was young, I was so afraid of public speaking, yet here I am called to preach. Uh, I'm the pastor of a vineyard who has a vineyard, and usually the one speaks to the other. God is oftentimes writing life in this narrative that is much more poetic than we give Him credit for. It's not just the happenings of the day. God is working in behind. We need to pay attention to it. If you miss it, then you could miss your assignment. So Jephthah, a nobody and outcast, brought in and raised up. And then, uh, verses 4 through 11, Jephthah begins to negotiate with the elders. In verse 6, the elders say, would you be our leader? In verse 8, he's like, sure, I'll be your head. And that's a different deal. Uh, leader means commander of the military. Head means head of the, head of the political system and the military. He's a negotiator. That's one of the things we find out about Jephthah. He's always working a deal. He works a deal with the elders. And then, as soon as he works a deal with the elders, starting in verse 12 through verse 27, he begins to negotiate with the king of Aram. So he agrees with the elders to be their leader and to fight the Amorites. And before he goes out to fight them, we know him as a mighty warrior. He does something that we don't expect. The first thing he does is negotiate. He, he looks at the Amorites and he says, why are you guys coming in on our land? And the Amorites are like, well, hey, man, you guys took it from us. And, and um, Jephthah says, well, number one, you might want to check your history. We didn't take it from you. We took it from some other guys. And number two, that was like 300 years ago, so step off. He's a negotiator, negotiates with the elders, negotiates with the kings. And then, this is really what I wanted to get to, uh, then there's great tragedy. It starts in verse 29 through 31. Up to this point in the book of Judges, the climax of every story is a battle and a victory. Um, and there's a battle and there's a victory in this story, but it's not the climax. So if we could look at verse 29 through 31, the, the story gets railroaded. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to me, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Will you stop right here just for a moment? We need to understand what is it that Jephthah is actually saying. Here's what Jephthah is saying. He's saying, Lord, if you'll let me win this battle then the first person who comes out of my house, I'm going to kill him and offer him to you as a burnt offering. The language is a little poetic, but what he's really getting at is, Lord, I will offer you a human sacrifice. How many of y'all know this? Not okay. Good. Not okay. Um, here's the irony in all of it. Jephthah promises the Lord a human sacrifice, 
And the irony of it all is that God doesn't want a human sacrifice, doesn't need a human sacrifice. And then, in addition, um, he promises the Lord. And the really, really bad part is, after they win and he goes home, the first person who comes out of his door is his daughter, his only daughter, his only child. Yikes. Goes and wins a victory, making promises he didn't need. The first person who comes out to meet her father is his only child, his only daughter. She comes up to meet him, and he says to her, Oh, daughter, what have you done to me? That's what he says to her. More like, Oh, dad, what are you about to do to me? And she says, Well, hey, if that's the deal you made, then that's the deal you made. Let me go weep for my virginity for two months, and then I'll come back and you do to me as you've said the Lord. So she goes and weeps. She comes back and he kills her and he offers her. So great victory from absolutely nothing. An outcast. Kicked out of his own home. No inheritance. Son of a prostitute. Raised up. Leads Israel in a victory over their enemies. Yet kills his only daughter. Offers her as a burnt offering. A um, couple things I want to get to here. Number one, uh, we just need to know this right up front. Uh, Israel didn't win because of Jephthah's vow. Israel didn't win because of Jephthah's vow. And that's part where the tragedy really, really kicks in. They didn't win because of his vow. They won because God was with them and God's spirit was on Jephthah. And the tragedy is, is that he didn't know that God's spirit was on him. Here's what makes it even more ironic. Jephthah uses the personal name of God more than any other person in the book of Judges. Jephthah never talks about God in an abstract manner. He always talks about Yahweh, the Lord. And so we're talking about somebody who had some knowledge of God, but didn't know that God wasn't up for human sacrifice. We're talking about somebody who had some knowledge of God, spoke his intimate name, but he didn't know when God's spirit was on him. It's, like, it's one of the reasons we make such a big deal here at the Vineyard about the presence of God. We want to know and we want to cooperate and we want to partner with the presence of God because knowing and cooperating with the presence of God leads to victory without casualties. Some of us have, some of us have a worldview. Uh, we know some things about God. Some of us even know some things about the presence of God, but we're only able to discern the presence of God in a particular time. Like some of us in the room can discern the presence of God when worship's flowing around and maybe a couple people fall down up front. We're like, okay, he's here. But we can't discern the presence of God when you're at home with your kids and you're just like watching Teletubby. Or do People don't even watch that anymore. <laughs> What's the DJ Lance show? I've got a... I, Yo Gabba Gabba. Or we don't watch... We watch other things at my house. Um, but when you're at home with your kids and you're unable to discern that, that God's with you, how many of you have ever been at home and there's been like this, this peace in the house that you, it's like, what, is there a person here? You ever experienced that? It's the Lord. Like you, and you need to be able to discern that. Why? Because the presence of God isn't just a crazy worship meeting where uh, worship gets really loud. We sing some stuff that's not on the screen and somebody flops around on the floor. Like, the presence of God is actually more than that. It's at your dinner table when your kids are just telling you about their day. And if you can only discern the one without the other, it could lead to tragedy. Can, do you know? Do you know? 
So number one, Israel didn't win because of Jephthah's vow. And then number two, for all of his courage, all of his valor, all of his skill, all of his negotiating, and all of his knowledge of God, he was completely ignorant. He was committed. He was committed. He was willing to fight for God's people. And he was sincere. He actually did follow through with his vow. But he was foolish and he was ignorant. Sometimes, especially today, sometimes we value sincerity, authenticity, and genuineness over truthfulness, right? Oh, they're such a sincere person. Oh, they win my heart. They're so authentic. How many of you know that you can be sincere and authentic and be totally wrong? How many of you know that if you are sincere and authentic about things that are totally wrong, it could lead to crazy disaster? See, the, the highest value in life is not sincerity, and the highest value in life is not, is not genuineness. The highest value in life is to be rooted and grounded in God's ways with a genuine heart. Don't be fooled by sincerity. You could, you could steam wreck, steam roll your life, steam wreck. You could steam wreck your life. So Jephthah murders his only kid. And I think there's four things for us to pick up here about Jephthah. Number one, Jephthah believed that God delighted in what hurts. Which is just another way of saying that he didn't know the nature of God. Jephthah believed that God only took serious commitments that would be unpleasant for him. Some of us in the room, there's enough people here and there was a, there was a lot of people here in the first service. Um, I, I know because our, our church has gotten to the size where I can guarantee, I would bet $100 bills, that there are people in our church who believe that God only delights in what's hard for you and what hurts you. In fact, I've, I've come to believe that most missionaries uh, leave America because they, what they really believe is they believe that God delights in what hurts. I've seen, I've seen so many college kids give their life to missions only to come back five years later divorced and ready, and ready to throw in the towel and, and out of love with Jesus because they went to a place that they didn't want to go to and the only reason they went is because they thought God wanted them to go do something that would make them miserable. I've seen that more times than I can count on my fingers and toes. Jephthah believed that God delights in what hurts. He believed that God's the sort of guy who takes pleasure in your pain. And it's a kind of martyr syndrome. What does God want? He only wants that which is hard and difficult. Let's not be martyrs. Not like that. You don't have to be martyrs like that. And the reason you don't have to be martyrs like that is because the pain's built in. You don't have to go looking for the pain. It'll hunt you down. Trust me. Don't go making trouble. Trouble will find you. Think of the best thing you can think of. What's the thing that would make you so, so happy? Like, what's the thing that would most make you... Like, what's the thing you really, really want to do? What's the thing that fear keeps telling you not to do, but, like, right underneath the fear is the thing, you like, you want to do it? Like with your whole life. Think about, think about you doing exactly what you've always wanted to do. You know what happens two months after you do the thing that you always wanted to do? You get steamrolled by pain. It's built in. Don't go looking for pain. It's built in. 
Some of us in the room are like, oh, if I, if I could just marry him, then I'd be happy. And then you find out that he comes with a lot of pain. Others of us in the room are like, if I could just get rid of her, then the pain would go away. If I could just get rid of her, then, then I'd, I, what I needed is a divorce. Then, then I'll get rid of the pain. No, you're just going to get more pain. You know what we need to do? We don't need to get married. We just need this, like, we just need this, you know, just, we're just going to keep it, like, clean, you know? Um, I'll have sex with you. It'll be awesome. I'll give you a house, and we'll be happy, and we don't really have to commit because that would just be complicated. You know what comes with that? Pain. <laughs> I, go do the thing that you can you think is going to be awesome. You don't have to go looking for pain. It'll find you. No martyrs here. God is not the person who delights in what's difficult. Life is difficult. And so the, the, real, the real issue here is, are we aware of God's presence? And are we aware of our assignment? And are we, are, we, are we embracing our assignment to the point that pain is not the determining factor of whether or not I will follow God? Like, I need an assignment that's bigger than pain. I don't need to go choosing pain to make God happy. He's already happy with me. Uh, number two, Jephthah was willing to sacrifice family to secure victory. God, first thing that comes out of my house is yours if you'll let me win. Uh, the translation on that is, God, I'll give you, I, I will throw my family in the fire if you'll let me win. This is, by the way, this is a really, really hard word. Uh, this is a really, really hard word, especially for the guys in the room. Um, so many men are willing to throw their children and their wives in the fire as long as they can win. This is really true for men in ministry. Uh, they'll take every single day, travel all over the world, and what ends up happening is, is that their kids grow up and they hate God and they hate them. And the net result is you threw your kids and you threw your wife in the fire so that you could win a few souls. And I'm here to tell you that's a Jephthah spirit that needs to come off of people. And it's not just men in ministry. It's men in business, too. If I could just get one more deal. I just need one more deal. Honey, I know I've been gone a lot. I need one more deal. Honey, come on. I got one more deal. I'm going to press on this thing. I know I'm never home. I, never, I know, I know, I know. And the net result is, God, I'm willing to give you my family if you'll just give me a victory. That's a hard word, but it could save your life. Jephthah was willing to sacrifice family to secure victory. And the really sad thing is that it was unrequired. God wasn't asking for kids thrown in a fire. God had already given him his spirit and victory was secure. See, oftentimes we're sacrificing things that God's not even asking for. That's the saddest part of it. Then number three, Jephthah believed that God might abandon him halfway through. Jephthah believed, Jephthah was willing to make this vow because he believed that God, he needed to get God's attention and he believed that God might abandon him halfway through the battle, that he might get out there with the sword and that somebody with a quicker draw may come and chop his head off and then kill everyone else and then that's it. You know why I believe that? I believe it's in the text. It says that Jephthah was the son of a prostitute and that his brothers drove him out of his own house. He had been abandoned, right? I believe, that, I believe that Jephthah's unhealed wounds and unhealed abandonment issues came into his relationship with God. And so he's willing to throw his own daughter in the fire to secure victory and not be abandoned again. See, it's the place of our pain that God wants to raise out an assignment. It's the place where you've experienced 
uh, great tragedy. It's the place that God wants to heal. He wants to speak to your abandonment issues. He wants to speak to your rejection. He wants to speak to the place where you have never been able to overcome. He wants to heal that, and then he wants to give you victory. And by the way, you can never run away from abandonment issues. Uh, you can never run away from your pain. Your pain will always recirculate because what God wants to, he wants to heal you and bring you through it. So some of us are like, man, you know what? I, my dad left me and the kids, you know. My dad left me and mom and my brothers and sisters. And you know what you're going to find the rest of your life until you get healed? You're going you're gonna to find a recurring cycle of rejection and abandonment and pain until you take it to Jesus and let him heal you. And then you know what you're going to find after you get healed from Jesus? You're going to find that he takes you into circumstances where it looks like he might abandon you, but he never does. And then you know what you're going to do after you go through circumstances where it looks like he might abandon you, but he never does? He's going to take you through more circumstances where it looks like he's going to abandon you, and he doesn't, and he's going to do it so that you can be a testimony to other people who have been abandoned and who have been rejected, and that God will stay with you, and you're going to be able to tell people, let me, tr- let me tell you somebody who's better than any dad on the planet. There's a dad who does not leave. Um, it's the good and the bad news this morning. The good news is that there's healing from pain. The bad news is, is you're going you're gonna to face it for the rest of your life. You're going you're gonna to go right. It, it's going to be the issue that God brings up over and over again. It's his assignment for you. And then number four, this is, this is the part that's really hard. Is Jephthah was willing to make this kind of vow and these kinds of actions because he was... He was ignorant, and he was ignorant in a particular way. He was ignorant of God's word. For everything that he knew, more than anyone else in the book of Judges, he spoke the personal name of God, Yahweh, for all of his zeal, for all of his commitment, for all of his sincerity. What he did not know was actually his undoing. See, Jephthah did not know that God did not delight in sacrifice like this. What he didn't know was that A person doesn't have to bargain with God. Jephthah didn't know that you don't have to bargain with God. You just have to trust Him and walk in His ways. You don't have to bargain with God. And I know some of of the Bible scholars in here are going, well, now now Abraham, he bargained with God. Well, it's a little bit different. Abraham bargained with God on behalf of other people. And in in so doing, he became like the Holy Spirit, an advocate. Jephthah was was bargaining with God on behalf of himself. It's totally different. Jephthah didn't know that you don't have to bargain with God on, on behalf of your own self, that God would take care of you. He didn't know that. And the reason he didn't know is because he was ignorant of God's word. He didn't know that God was slow to anger and that he was rich in love. He didn't know that God was faithful to a thousand generations. And the really, really sad part is that he didn't know that there was a way out. The book of Deuteronomy says this. It says, um, don't make a vow rashly, and if you do, pay it quickly. That's what the book of Deuteronomy says. And Jephthah pretty much did that. Made a, he made it rashly, but he did pay quickly. But um, one of the things that Jephthah didn't know was that in Leviticus 27, the Lord puts a value on human lives. And what Jephthah didn't know is that he could have said to the Lord, Lord, I've made a huge mistake. And he could have taken a sum of money that the word of God prescribed and he could have taken it to the priest and he could have offered it to the Lord and the Lord would have said, totally cool. He didn't know it. It's really, really sad. He didn't know it and his daughter didn't have to die. I bring it up because this sort of thing happens all the time in the church. 
In fact, it's, come, it's become quite fashionable in the church. It's become incredibly fashionable on the blogosphere to say that you know the Spirit or to say that you know Jesus, the true Word of God, apart from the Scriptures. In fact, P. Ray sent an email to Eric and I yesterday. And in the email, uh, it was uh, just an excerpt from a study that was just recently done. And the study says this. It says that 40% of millennial believers don't believe that the Bible is God's Word at all. Like, it was written by men, not God's Word. Yeah, there's, there's something happening right now in the church where we, we are, we're, push, we're, saying, we're saying yes to a certain kind of spirituality, but we're, we're rejecting so much of what the scriptures offer us. And in doing so, we're, we're, accepting, um, we're accepting outcomes that will be very Jephthah-like in the long run. Yeah. He didn't know the Word of God. We, we, need, we need to know the Word of God. Like, if I could say anything this morning to the vineyard, I would say this, like, love the scriptures. Devour them. Read them. Memorize them. Read all the books. Read even the books you think that don't matter. Like numbers. Like, there's amazing stuff in numbers. It could save your life. Your life might depend on it. Now, for all the needless tragedy, and this is the part that really scrambles my eggs, for all the needless tragedy and for the horror that's in the story of Jephthah, the thing that really blows me away is that Jephthah is included in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith, and he sits right between Samson and David. Dang. It's pretty unbelievable. By the way, Samson, Jephthah, David, all incredibly weak people. Like high highs, low lows. They're like this, they're, they're a particular kind of mountain range all by themselves. They're, they're mountain peaks and valleys in every one of their lives. Like one of David's best ideas was, she's hot, let's kill her husband so I can have her. That, that was like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God was like, that guy's, he's got a heart after me. Yeah, high highs, low lows. One of the things I see in that is that the Bible is able to celebrate people who are profoundly weak. And that God would rather shout about victory than highlight someone's weakness. It's not about glossing something over either. Because Jephthah's failures are in the text and they're in the text for forever. and, And it's not about saying, oh, that didn't matter. It's just that in heaven, victories are forever. In heaven, winning is shouted. And sometimes in the church, we shout failure and we don't celebrate victory. I think, I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to fall in love with the Scripture so we're not ignorant people who are sincere about God but don't know His ways and, and basically throwing our future to the fire. 
But one of the other things we need to do is, in the vineyard, we need to be, become even more committed to celebrating victory and not just shouting failure. In heaven, people are judged perfectly, and they're judged by what they've received. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, one day, you and I, we're going to stand before the Father, and when you and I stand before the Father, uh, we're going to receive a judgment, and the judgment we receive is going to be purely focused purely related and focused upon what he's given us. I'm not going to be compared to you. God's not going to be like, well, you know, Mark Manning and Adam. Well, Adam, you know what? You're, you're not that great. Mark was way better. Rejected. He's never going to do that. Every single person in all of history is going to stand before the Father and they're going to be judged based upon what they received. And one of the things that I've noticed from the life of Jephthah is that he received almost nothing. Imagine this. You grow up in a time of great apostasy. Uh, people serve every God they can come to except for the God of Israel. Your mother's a prostitute. You probably don't even know her. You grow up in a family where all your brothers hate you and they eventually kick you out and they steal your inheritance and you end up in the desert like a jackal with a bunch of worthless fellows around you and somehow Jephthah becomes the person in all of history at that time, to stand up and do something for God. God's not judging Jephthah against Jesus. God's just judging Jephthah against what Jephthah received, which was almost nothing. It's actually a wonder that Jephthah did anything for God. Anybody in here ever met somebody who was really jacked up? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, you, this, is the, this is how we tell if somebody's jacked up. They're jacked up if they're more jacked up than you, right? Like you meet somebody and there's this little program that goes on. It's like, wow, they're, they're kind of more put together than me. You know? Or they're like totally crazy. And my standard of crazy is just the crazy that I have in my own life. So, Ever met anybody who was more crazy than you? Fun game. When you meet somebody who's really, really jacked up, you should just ask them a couple questions. First question is, tell me about your dad. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Tell me about your dad. Second question is, what was your house like growing up? Because almost always what's going to happen is these incredibly jacked up people are going to tell you a horror story. And then after they finish telling you the horror story, you're going to be like, I can't believe they're not more jacked up. I was hanging out with a guy the other day, a really jacked up individual. So I asked him those questions. Hey, tell me about your dad. He's like, well, my dad... Man, my filter just worked there. It was really good. It was awesome. I felt it kick in. It was like... He's like, my dad is... And then I'm like, well, what does that mean? He was like, well... He was like, well... When I was three... He was like, when I was three... He was like, when I was three, my dad would blow... would, uh, Would smoke marijuana and he'd blow the smoke in my sister's mouth and my mouth and we'd get high and 
He says, I remember my dad handing me pornography when I was six. And I remember my uncle putting his cigarettes out on my back when I was set. You know, it, it was like, you know, what's crazy about that is it, there's actually people in the room who've experienced every bit of what I'm talking about right now. And then, and then you, after this conversation, I'm like, and you know, Jesus, like it all. He's like, yeah, I love Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. I'm like, what? No, no, no. Really? Yeah. What? Because the story doesn't even correlate with how well he's doing. I'm like, and you've, you've never robbed a bank? He's like, no, never even wanted to. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> no, never, never robbed a bank. And you, and you don't hit women? No, I don't hit women. I just, I just, I smoke a lot of meth and I, and I'm trying to find Jesus. And I'm like, that's it, meth, that's it. I didn't say that, but in my brain, I'm going, that's it. Like you don't even Michael Vick a dog occasionally. No, no Michael Vicking dogs. (laughs) Yeah, it's a wonder. God's grace is so amazing. It's crazy what God will bring people through. It's crazy what God is is raising people right out of like we just we don't even know so a, a few bits of action for us this week uh, these are some things you could do you could call it homework if you want or not Maybe. <laughs> this this meaning is disintegrating <laughs> one of my spiritual gifts is to be able to disintegrate meetings Mm. a bit of action Uh, number one you should know your past and you should embrace your story even the pain Um, people are fond of saying forgive and forget and I I think that's wrong I think you should forgive and remember you should live with it and you should put your scars right out in front of everybody because that's actually the assignment that God has given you the place that you've been wounded he wants to heal you and he wants to put you right out in front of everybody that you could be encouragement there's other people who are experiencing the same thing. Know your story. Like, look for the way that God has woven poetry through your life. Uh, number two, uh, Vineyard, please, for the love of Jesus, fall in love with the Scriptures. Oh, my gosh, please, fall in love with the Scriptures. Um, we're sort of a prophetic church. What I'd really like for us to be is a prophetic church who reads the Bible. Because prophetic people who don't read the Bible just get weirder and weirder. They'll talk to you about like talking to angels and sticking pennies to the walls. But I just want to know, have you ever read Isaiah? No joke. No joke. Like, really? Like, you want to be a prophet? How about read the prophets? Any of them, pick one. Like, get it in. Get, get some of, get some of that, get some of that water that, that's for the thirsty. Speak from that fountain. Uh, um, in, in my years of doing ministry, uh, the scariest people I meet are prophetic people who don't read the Bible. They do more damage in Jesus' church than they help. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, I love the prophetic. Like It changes people's lives and we need it. It's not one or the other. It's both and. It's not. It's not both. It's not either or. It's. It's. We need both. So I'm. I'm saying. Fall. What do we got to do this week? We got to fall in love with the scriptures. All of it. The books you think that don't matter. They actually matter. Read them all. 
Read Hosea. Read it three times. It'll break your heart. Then you might have something to say to the brokenhearted. It's amazing. It's really, really amazing. Read Revelation. I don't care if you understand it. Just read it and love it. I've never read Revelation and understood even 10% of it. And every time I get to the end, I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. I think Revelation is like the most encouraging book in the whole Bible. By the end of it, I'm always like, I don't even know what happened there, but I believe it and it's awesome. You'll, you'll dig a well. There's a fountain to be dug out in our life. Um, and the fountain isn't just, uh, isn't just a Holy Spirit ministry. The fountain is what has undergirded and, and has launched all of Holy Spirit ministry, and it's the Bible. Like, we need it. Dig in. Find the Word of God somewhere. Find a place where, where, where your heart comes alive. Um, people who don't read the Scriptures, they dry up, and their words turn to dust. And the only thing you're left with if you don't read the Scriptures is you're left with guilt and manipulation. And there's nothing worse than, than uh, prophetic people who are, who are drawing from a river of guilt and manipulation. We begin to speak words to people, not for their own good, but how we, we begin to speak words that make them vulnerable to our agenda. Uh, I've noticed that people who don't have a, have a foundation in God's Word and a love for God's Word, they become, um, they become master manipulators, and they also become people who, who, who are, are less prophetic, and they're, um, they're more into flattery. And, and flattery is always about making someone else vulnerable to my agenda. The prophetic is always about making you vulnerable to God's agenda for your life. We need that. So number two, fall in love with the scriptures. And then number three, give grace to weak people. Um, the jacked up people, the ones that are more jacked up than you. Let's give grace to those and let's learn how to celebrate uh, victories in one another's lives. That doesn't mean we gloss over things. That doesn't mean that when someone is is in sin that we just turn a blind eye. It means we go and try to grab a brother. But it means it means that... Oh, for the love of Jesus, in this house, we want to celebrate victory. Um, every person in here has got crazy pain. Every person in here has got crazy defeat. If you don't yet, you will. And you, but more than that, you have victory. And in heaven, victory is going to be remembered. Uh, it, Jesus, it says that in heaven, every tear is going to be wiped away from your eye, uh, which is to say that regret is going to leave. And the only thing that's going to be remembered is victory. It's the only thing that's going to be remembered. Amen? Amen. Hey, why don't you stand up? If there's a ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? Uh, Anybody here have issues with their left kidney... Issues with left kidney this morning. If you're here, we want to pray for you. Why don't you put your hand on your heart? Lord, we love you here at the vineyard. And... Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd help us so much. Father, we, uh, God, we want to be, um, we want to be people who, who are moving in redemption and reconciliation. And God, we ask that you would deliver us from Jephthah patterns in our life. God, we want to bring you our pain and our brokenness and have you pull a calling out of it uh, but God, we, we, we don't want to 
live our lives ignorant of your ways and do great damage. So God, we ask that you would that you would just circumvent Jephthah patterns in our life. God, would you give us a love for your word? God, would you give us grace for really weak people? God, would you show us all the ways in which you are raising up those parts of our lives that we despise the most and turning it into powerful ministry? We just welcome you here, Holy Spirit. God, would you rest on your people? Anybody in here have a have a sore in their mouth that's been giving them fits for a bit? Uh-huh. Yeah, we we want to pray for you. Okay, feel like there's healing for that this morning. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need to respond to the word, you come on up. We got a ministry team. If you're